welcome back to a new year with the Drill to Detail podcast, where we talk about what's interesting in the world of big data and analytics and the people making it happen. So my name is Mark Rittman, and I'm pleased to be joined this episode by Julian Hyde, a name you probably know through his work on the Mondrian project, and more recently through his involvement with the Apache Calcite project. Julian, it's great to have yet another Brit who's escaped across the pond to the West Coast on the show. So how are you, and what's the weather like over there? And it's great to meet you. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, I'm great. Uh, the weather's a bit British today, actually. It's, it's kind of <laughs> gloomy, and, gloomy and foggy. Um, but, uh, well, th- that's the exception. It's... it's it's usually pretty nice over here. So, Julian, just tell us a bit about, I suppose, how you got into the IT industry and, I suppose, what you, how you started off in the UK and you, maybe your first kind of, like, you know, job and work you did really at Oracle. Yeah, so I, I, I had a, a computer science degree from Cambridge um, in England and uh, immediately went to work on uh, software development in, in Oracle UK, working in Chertsey, um, working on Oracle's case tools, um, so I, w- I uh, was the author of the default database designer, which basically took an entity model and generated a database schema from it. Um, I worked on other things such as the uh, C++ generator, um, and I was uh, involved in some ways with the Oracle repository project. So that was, a, that was the first four years of my career. Um, very happy time, actually. Um, and I still draw, you know, entity, Richard Barker-style entity relationship diagrams. When when I have a difficult design problem, I'm trying to figure out a data structure. Um, I, I I learned to think about data models uh, in that time. So what's interesting is I think you must have started, you must be roughly the same age as me. I think you started your query in this area, building the tools that I was using. So I actually used to use um, the case tools and I think it was Designer 2000 back in that sort of time. I was working at um, the Woolwich and I worked at Toyota as well. And um, it's interesting to hear the person behind it who was, uh, or certainly one of the people behind it, you know, speak to them. I mean, I suppose case case tools and modeling tools, I mean, what was what were they trying to achieve? And, and do you think they're ever sort of like, did they reach their, their, their kind of maximum use really, do you think? Um, <clears throat> I think... Th- there's a cultural difference between the use of case tools in Europe and, and, and the US. I think case tools were driven to a certain extent by the needs of you know, corporate governance to have a, um, a paper trail, a well-documented well process. Um, think, you know, standards like SSADM would drive the, 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 the use of the case tools. Um, and you know, the goal of it was to, was to produce not only produce code, but also to produce documentation along the way. Um, and, you know, given that, given how limited source control systems were at the time, it was good to be, to have a fully documented project as you were, as you were developing it. Um, I, you know, I, I said there was a cultural difference. So it was, it was kind of interesting that American software engineers I was interacting with were really not interested in following these kind of processes. But if you were if you were doing let's say a database centric project um, where the end result was going to be a database schema and perhaps some forms, then a case tool was a, a very useful tool to uh, to you know help you help you along the way with that project. Okay, okay. So you worked on that for a while, and then you went actually to Oracle HQ to work on text retrieval for the Oracle database. I mean, tell us about that, and I suppose what what got your interest in the database area in the first place, really. Yeah, I I was always inspired by databases just from, you know, back to the database course in, in university. 
um, uh, you know, involved in data models in 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 case. Um, text retrieval, by the way, first the first iteration of text retrieval was developed in the UK, just down downstairs in Chertsey. And version two, they decided to re-engineer it and rebuild it using a team in the US. Um, they hired um, Mark Kramer, who had been at um, uh, I forget one one of the text one of the text companies, and started building it with a US team. But they recruited some of the UK team to work on it and and to have continuity. And so I, I knew people that were in the Oracle Chertsey that were moving over there, and I they, they invited me to move o- move over as well. And of course, I accepted because it's you know to a Brit being in California is like being on vacation, you know, 365 yeah. days a year. So um, uh, it, it, it was it was wonderful to move over. Um, interestingly, um, so we were, we were doing some very interesting stuff. And um, uh, uh, around this time, um, Sybase released Sybase IQ, which was kind of the first, uh, uh, well, maybe not the first, but, but it was a, uh, a database with bitmap indexes. Um, and it was creating a lot of splash in the press. It was producing some very interesting benchmark results. And I think it caught response to that. And the response was to add Oracle, uh, bitmap indexes in Oracle 7.3. Mm. So it turns out a, a text index, uh, you know, unlike a regular, in, a regular database index, you have one an, an entry in the index and it points to one row. Mm. A text index, you have a word like red and it points to, it has a list of row IDs, it has a list of the rows or the documents that contain that. Mm. Um, and a bitmap index is similar in that a, a single entry read in the bitmap index is going to have a list, a compressed list of row IDs for the rows that it points to. Mm. So in the internals, a bitmap index is very similar to a text index. So they, even though the, the, the text, text indexes were being developed outside of the server technologies division, outside mm. of the kernel they turned to um, my team mm. to develop these bitmap indexes, and we had to basically deliver it, turn it around in, in, in from you know a blank sheet of paper to product in nine months, which is pretty rapid for Oracle. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I remember I remember Sybase IQ and I think Sand at the same time. So on. they were all, they were kind of were they column store databases as well? I don't remember. I think it was. I th- yes, yes. You might be right. You might be right. But bitmap indexes were definitely a, a big part of the. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember them coming in. I remember them coming in, and um, I think at the time the, the tricky bit was that you couldn't update them in the same way, you know, performance-wise, and so on. But certainly, I, I suppose for query performance, they were fantastic. And uh, so you were involved in that, and um, that obviously is a product area that's gone on over sort of several versions since then. I mean, what led you to, I mean, how far did you go with that? And what led you then to move on, I suppose, from the Oracle world to maybe sort of embrace more open source? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a couple of years before I got involved in open source. But it, what, what was um, the, the next step? Uh, it was ironic in that I, I was, you know, at that point, I was in the Oracle t- kernel team, which I, you know, dreamt of being in. Um, but we saw this opportunity that, you know, this, this team at Oracle saw this opportunity to produce um, a data warehouse. Well, let's say a data mart, which was a uh, Windows NT had just been released. And so, um, you know, rather than having to spend $20,000 on or $50,000 on a machine to, to be able to do data warehousing, now you could realistically spend $2,000, $3,000 on, on a Windows machine. Um, 
Windows NT you know, had a much better scheduler than Windows, and therefore it, it was capable, you, you could do um, multiprocessing and so forth. It had a real operating system with, you know, memory protection and so forth. So we set out to build a SQL DBMS that was optimized for um, analytics um, on Windows NT. And that company was called Broadbase, and we founded it in uh, 1995. Um, and uh, it went public in, in 2000. Um, but uh, it was totally fun building a base from the ground up in C++. I guess that must have got you a taste for, I suppose, product and building your own thing and, and um, I suppose kind of uh, yeah, starting a company from scratch, especially in that area. But I suppose building a, a, um, a data warehouse or data, a database engine for Windows is always quite risky, obviously, with SQL Server and that sort of thing. I mean, how did you find it in terms of the commercial side of it and um, I suppose kind of getting a user base and, and, and making it successful? Yeah, we were we were successful at first, but then we found. Um, I mean, you're exactly right regarding SQL Server. Um, Microsoft started aggressively adding features to SQL Server, um, and uh, it was becoming very very difficult to sell head to head against SQL Server, even though we were you know maybe five times faster. Um, Microsoft was pretty much giving it away for free if you brought, bought an enterprise edition of Windows. So it, it just, uh, we realized we needed to climb up the, up the value stack. Um, so rather than selling a database, we were selling um, an, ETL, uh, an ETL pipeline, uh, an ETL tool, um, an analytic uh, framework so you could create dashboards and so forth, and ultimately analytic applications. So this, this coincided with the, you know, the birth of the web. People were running servers generating web blogs. They wanted to understand their interactions with their customers. Um, and so uh, on top of the SQL database inside Broadbase, we developed this suite of analytic applications for people to develop, uh, for, to analyze web traffic. Okay. 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 What was your involvement with the actual kind of, I suppose, the engineering behind that product? I mean, did you get involved in the, I suppose, the database engine at all or anything in that kind of area? Yeah, I was I was mainly working on the database engine. So um, uh, the initial area I was involved was uh, building some of the data structures, so the bitmap indexes, uh, the column store, um, and also building some of the high performance algorithms. So I'm um, very very proud of an algorithm I wrote uh, to do um, hash join, um, which uh, it was a hybrid hash join uh, implementation where it would it would partition both sets of data and uh, use bloom filters to figure out which rows could possibly could not possibly match rows on the other side, repartition the data to disk um, until it was small enough to be able to do a join. So I, 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 so I was doing those kinds of tasks kind of deep in the, deep in the heart of the, of the database server. Um, somebody, somebody else wrote the initial version of the optimizer, but it very quickly became um, spaghetti code and I read um, the the Volcano paper by Gertz Graf and uh, Bill McKenna um, about uh, creating a uh, an optimizer that was cost based but involved um, uh, uh, applications of transformation rules. And the idea was that you could register these transformation rules that would match particular patterns of relational algebra um, and transform the relational algebra to different relational algebra statements. 
Um, and so I started applying that within Broadbase as an attempt to just rationalize this optimizer that had gotten out of control. Okay. I mean, how do you, I mean, I remember from those days that when I was, when I switched from the rule based optimizer in Oracle to the cost based one, the hardest thing was getting predictable performance, you know, and actually, I suppose, uh, really kind of hard coding in there. Or certainly, you know, you knew the path it wanted to take, but it would take different ones because of the nature of a cost based optimizer. I mean, how did you, how did you sort of deal with that and get performance out of it? And what, what were the kind of things that you brought, might have brought to that really beyond that kind of volcano paper? <clears throat> yeah, I think that was more. As we were a startup, um, it, predictability was less of a concern than simply uh, maintainability of the code. So um, uh, our our customers were in general happy that we produced good plans, and they you know they didn't have you know huge existing applications running that they would say you know this one query out of a hundred is is running slower. We, so we didn't have to face that problem, luckily. Um, but we were, you know, we we just like a typical startup, we developed a lot of code, and we were we were getting slower and slower and slower because we were maintaining the code. So this 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 optimizer with pluggable rules allowed us to basically just do so, better software engineering in, inside our company and rationalize what we were producing because we wanted to be able to add new features like. Um, summary tables uh, we 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 had an op, uh, a ddl statement called create cube which basically meant create a a structure within which you can it, the system would automatically create summary tables um and so which were you know a form of materialized view we wanted to be add be able to add those kinds of features without breaking the optimizer so that was our main goal um Okay, so that must have been the. I mean, you you, you mentioned Cube there, and, and and some of the techniques, and um, I suppose some of the sort of things you're talking about there, obviously, are what in, would have led on to what you then did with Mondrian and and the kind of you know the OLAP world there. I mean, what what led to your interest in 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 OLAP, and what led to your, I suppose, kind of you know focus on that more towards the end, really. It was driven by when we first released Broadbase, we imagined that end users, business users, would write SQL. And, and this just t turned out to be, um, uh, I, I think to some extent these days, business users or, or uh, analysts or data scientists will write, will write SQL. But back in those days, we were, we were deceiving ourselves. We were, you know, end users didn't want to write SQL. Um, and, you know, the most convenient interface for a business user is... Um, a multi-dimensional slice and dice interface where you, you see a dimensional view of the uh, of the data you know dimensions and measures uh, you can you know double click on a uh, on a uh, member of a dimension and uh, then see the results so we um, we realized that our analytic applications had to have that interface and uh, since uh, we were running on Windows um, Microsoft uh, pretty much you know free in every windows installation was uh, microsoft it was then called microsoft sql server olap services what became analysis services um you know it was rebranded as analysis services a couple of releases later um and uh it was um originally an israeli company i forget forget the name of it but it was panorama right and it was 
I believe, you know, written in a portable way. It was probably run on, run on Unix when it was originally written. And it certainly didn't mind which database it was running against. And one of the kind of bizarre, surprising things was that when Microsoft included it with SQL Server, it still didn't mind which database it was running against. And it ran perfectly happy, happily against Broadbase. So we used Microsoft MS OLAP, I guess we called it then, as, as the kind of multidimensional engine. And then we built um, analytic applications using ActiveX controls um, and JSP pages. And the JSP page, sorry, not it was ASP pages. And back in those days, before Sun and Microsoft had a falling out, um, Microsoft's Java implementation could speak to COM objects. And so we, we wrote this application. The ASP pages were talking to our Java objects, um, and the Java objects were talking to my MS OLAP via COM. So, um, yeah, it was Java was part of the Microsoft stack back then. Um, and it, it, all, it all worked pretty nicely. Yeah, I, mem- I remember everything you're talking about there. I, I worked with at the time, and um, I mean, we, we had um, I had um, Donald Farmer on the uh, podcast a few months ago. Uh-huh. Obviously, obviously, you know from from being one of the PMs on on that product. I mean, that uh, analysis services brought along a whole bunch of things that have just become, I suppose, just kind of part of the landscape now. MDX and and things like that. I mean, what what was your view on, I suppose, the MDX language and 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 generally how they'd kind of written it and put it together? I mean, I know obviously it came from Panorama, but what was your view on on I suppose how groundbreaking it was or, or different really? It was very groundbreaking. So the context back then, there, there were there were two things about. I mean, you remember the multi-dimensional database manifesto? Um, uh, yeah, there was there was all this excitement about multi-dimensional databases, and they were portrayed as this new thing that were going to, if you believed the hype at the time, they were going to defeat the relational database. Um, and um, what what. Uh, I guess Panorama brought to it is this this I uh, oh and of course if you had a multi-dimensional database you had to put all the data into the multi-dimensional database you know you couldn't store it relationally um, and um, MS OLAP um, ran in a um, it, it ran in three modes the multi-dimensional mode uh, rollout mode and hybrid mode. In other words, they were saying, yeah, sure, you can do multidimensional data analysis on data in your relational database. Uh, it, it may be, for certain operations, it might be more efficient if you put it into this multidimensional format. In other words, if you, you convert it into arrays or matrices uh, inside, but it's still just data. So that was, that was, that was one thing, was, was um, getting rid of this idea of, of the, the multidimensional database as kind of the end point you know, or the, the, the hub of everything. Um, so it fitted more within a conventional uh, SQL-based uh, data warehouse. The other thing was they actually had a textual query language. And if I recall, all of the other multidimensional databases, you would build those queries programmatically. Um, or, or, in fact, you'd probably just have to use their user interface, uh, their, de- their dedicated tool to build these slice and dice queries. So the idea of MDX... Um, MDX isn't perfect. I think one of the mistakes they made was to make it look too much like SQL. So people imagined that if they knew SQL, they didn't have to learn MDX. But simply having a textual language, something that you could, you know, check into a source control system and 
share with your colleagues by pasting it and and, and it it made it much more tractable than uh, the the API based OLAP that uh, people like SBase were doing at the time. I think the uh, there's probably other features in, in MDX that were paralleled by other multi, multi-dimensional databases at the time. But the, the general way that um, you define, for example, calculated members and, and so the integration with Visual Basic for uh, the built-in functions was excellent. Yeah. Um, so. I mean, it was it was it was revolution. I mean, it was interesting. I used to work on Oracle Space, sorry, Oracle Express at the time, and yeah. it, it it completely it completely it completely kind of you know revolutionised that market because it as you said MDX was there. It was virtually free, um, and uh, it did well. But then, but then I, I noticed a product coming out, which was Mondrian, which is obviously when I first heard about you. And what what led to? I mean, obviously you had you had you had your kind of company broad base, and then you moved on from there, and so on. It, it sold and IPO'd, I think, which is fantastic. But but then, how did you get involved in Mondrian, and and what was the motivation behind that? I can see the obvious technology links there, and so on. But what what led to that really? So the um, there was a business motivation, which was that broad base merged with Karna Communications. Um, which is a company that was doing ECRM and and, and so forth. Um, and uh, that company had not decided to be Windows only. They ran on Windows and Solaris, probably HPUX as well. Um, and so we could no longer assume that um, analysis services was going to be there in the box. Um, so we were told that we needed to make our server running. Uh, Linux was not around at that point, Um but uh, we, we were told that we needed to make our server run on operating systems other than Windows. And so, um, uh, you know, we considered moving to, uh, you know, another multidimensional database, but we realized that would have been a complete rewrite. Um, and I realized, you know, having used analysis services for a while, I understood the MDX language. We actually had an MDX parser because we had... Um, the, the early versions of analysis services didn't do any kind of security. So we would actually pause the MDX, uh, insert access controls, like to make sure that, you know, Mark is only allowed to access customers uh, in Europe, uh, that kind of thing. So we would instrument the MDX and then send it, pass it on to, to, to Microsoft. Um, we had that parser already written in Java. Um, and I said to myself, well, how difficult would it be to uh, just write a model file in XML that defines the dimensions and measures and how they map onto the fact table, and then just uh, 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 just make this thing run in, in Java with no storage whatsoever, so it would be completely passed through. Um, and I knocked this up in a weekend um, and presented it to. It was I think it, it was August two thousand one. Um, Presented it to my boss on Monday morning and said, "Look, here's a here's a start. Um, uh, I, you know, I know I can't finish this, but if you will let me open source this this stuff, I think, I think in a year or you know possibly six months, we'll have something that we can we can ship our products on." So they they gave me permission to open source the stuff that we already had, um, and uh, spin off this open source project. Um, and that's what became Mondrian. So it was done with the support of, of my management in 
but it was then Karma Software. Um, but you know, I parted company from them. Uh, you know, probably like nine months later. But Mondrian, by that point, had developed enough momentum that it carried on. Okay. Okay. So just for anybody here that doesn't know what Mondrian is, I mean, just basically explain what it is and i suppose what was the kind of essence of, of, of how it worked you mentioned there about it was passed through it was kind of generating sequence on you know what was it and how did it differ perhaps from say analysis services in molap mode yeah um so i guess architecturally it's most similar to analysis in rollout mode so what it is i i refer to it as an open open source olap engine um so and it it's uh, I think it's fair to say it's it's the by far the most successful open source OLAP engine, um, uh, and um, uh, it implements the MDX language. So um, we would speak to Mondrian, you know, either via, from Java or ASP, um, in exactly the same way as far as our ASP pages were concerned. It, you'd, speaking to Mondrian was exactly the same as speaking to analysis services. You'd send an MDX statement and you'd get a uh, multidimensional a cell set back. Um, and the, the difference is that um, it, it didn't have, there was nothing to install. It didn't have any, anything on disk. So all you, needed, all you needed to supply were a jar file containing Mondrian um, a, a JDBC connect string to the database, the relational database where your data was, um, and the URL of a XML file that contained your model. With those three things, it was sufficient to be able to say, you know, select from sales um, to, to, to do an MDX query on a, on a cube. Um, Mondrian would then be able to figure out, get, you know, populate its dimension, dimension cache in memory know where to get the, the 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 cell values the measure values from and and it would it would submit several sql queries to the relational database to get all of the necessary information to res return the results of that um, multidimensional query so it because it didn't have anything on disk you didn't have to you know build a cube or process a cube or anything like that it was extremely convenient to embed in an application because it just it would just start up and of course the first couple of queries were slow because it was populating the cache um, but after that it, it it you know ran very nice and fast so, so when I first heard about Mondrian and when I first looked at it, I mean, my, my um, I suppose my, um, I was anticipating it would be slow and uh, awful to use because Oracle, Oracle went through a phase of, of rewriting all of their OLAP, all of their OLAP front ends in Java and their engines in, in in bits of it in Java, but also they moved some of it to Rollup as well, and they were slow. The the you know Java would be the kind of the, you know the worst thing to build things in then, but you but Mondrian was fast. And what was it? How did you how did you solve the problem of making it fast? How did you first of all, I suppose, the question is why did you choose Java over say say C plus plus? And secondly, how did you make it run fast? Really. So, um, one of the principles um, are, was to make let the database do what the database was good at. Um, you know, if you need to. Uh, sum, sum up 10 million rows, the database is very well optimized for that. So all of those kinds of aggregations, if you can possibly do it in the database, do it in the database. 
um, which means those 10 million rows stay in the database and then all you get back from the database is one row that is, that is the total. So Monium would then cache that row or cache that cell value so it doesn't have to go back to the database again. Um, but really the Java has not had to do very much. It hasn't had to do much of the number crunching because, because the database has done it. Um, and, and an awful lot of um, multi-dimensional queries are actually not very computation intensive. They, people are using OLAP because they simply want a slice and dice interface to their data warehouse. Um, and so the SQL that's generated is relatively straightforward. Um, so Java is not, is not imposing any kind of a penalty there. The other, the other very strong reason to use Java is it's a very forgiving language. Um, you know, your system isn't going to crash if you make a mistake, which basically is important for an open source project because you don't, you basically want to be able to accept contributions without worrying too much about whether they're going to crash the system. So it allowed us to move faster and be more open to contributions than if we'd, um, it's also an easier, it's easier, easier language for people to learn and to, and to, to program in. So it, it, it increased the size of our audience. And by the way, um, when newer languages such as Scala come along, um, the, the rationale to stay on Java is kind of similar, that even though Scala is an excellent language, still the number of people who can program in Scala is smaller than the number of people that can program in Java. So um, uh, Java's aging these days, but still you know, there's a lot of open source projects still written in Java because... It's, it represents a large audience of developers. Okay, so the thing, the thing that, from what I could see, you seemed to get right was converting, I suppose, multidimensional queries to relational, you know, going from MDX to, to relational. That's not easy, and, and I've seen various attempts that other vendors have done. Uh, again, how did, you, how did you sort of tackle that problem? And, and I suppose in a way, you know, um, what was your approach to trying to take one type of query there make it into SQL, which obviously has paid off later on because you've been doing that all the way through the other projects you've been doing as well. Yeah, so it is difficult, in fact, probably impossible to create, to, to translate an MDX statement into one SQL statement, um, unless you're using like Oracle extensions to SQL, that, that kind of stuff. So um, in essence, a typical Mondrian query would be three SQL statements, one for the columns axis, one for the rows axis, and one for the cells. Um, uh, and, and if you decompose it that way, then it's relatively straightforward. Uh, and then we have a computation engine. If there's calculated members, we have a computation engine which, um, you know, functions, you know, inter internally, the MDX language is kind of like this virtual spreadsheet where you can reference a cell might be Q2 sales of red widgets, and another cell might be 1997 sales of green widgets. Um, and so you can, you, when, you're, when you're referencing one, one of those cells might be a, a value which is stored in the database or an a, a aggregate of columns is stored in the database, or it might be another formula. So we, we have this computation engine that evaluates these these cell formulas um, and if it's an expression then it will just recursively you know using a using an interpreter um, it will it will recursively evaluate this expression until it comes down to a base cell value and if you're lucky most most of the time in Mondrian th this won't have to generate a SQL statement to get that cell value you know q2 sales of red widgets 
um, it will it will it, it will find that in Mondrian's cache. And so uh, I jokingly say that Mondrian only does two things. One of which is it it present it converts relational data into multidimensional data. So it tr it transforms it into this dimensional view. Um, and the other thing it does is caching. Um, and in in the case of OLAP, caching is in my view essential because um, uh, because of the nature of the application, you've got a you've got a, a sequence of queries, perhaps over a thirty minute period. Someone is analyzing a particular set of data, um, and they don't mind if the first query of the day is slow, um, as long as the second and third and fourth queries are fast. Um, and they tend to be looking at the same, not executing the same query, but accessing the same underlying data in those sequence of queries. And so that, that's, you know, caching makes that kind of application very, very, very fast. So Mondrian uses this cache of cell values so that once it's asked for, well, it won't ask for Q2, Q2 sales of red widgets, it will ask for, give me all of the sales of all widgets um, aggregated by quarter um, for all years between, you know, 1990 and 2005, that, something like that. And this comes back as this kind of rectangular array of data that is stored in Java's memory. Um, and once it has that, all, all, all cells that are from that area will be answered from cache. Now, if you happen to have a cache miss, if you're asking for a cell like, um, uh, you know, sales in 1989, then it will, it will store up that cache miss um, and it'll lie. It will basically say the sales in 1989 were zero. So it, it will make that entire pass over kind of trying to calculate the query. Um, it, will, it will complete the pass. It will evaluate all of the MDX expressions, but it will produce a result which is junk because, um, you know, at least, one of the, at least one of the values in it was, was a lie. But what's, what's happened at the end of that is it's generated this list of cache misses. So, uh, you know, 1989 it didn't know, 1987 it didn't know. So now it will take those cache misses, gather them together in a kind of a rectangle, um, and then submit another SQL query to get to resolve those cache misses. And hopefully when that data has come back, it will be able to make a pass over the data without you know, generating any cache misses and without telling any lies to itself, um, and the query will complete. Generally speaking, you know, in... In one or two, one or two passes, it will um, it will have everything it needs in the cache, and so the computation will terminate. So, so the other thing that I noticed about um, Mondrian at the time was was the amount of other projects that were kind of in its ecosystem. And you had like Jay Pivot was there, and, and what, what was the what was the what was the kind of role of, of was it Jay Jay Pivot that was uh, the front end for what you were doing? Yes, it was. So um, uh, we realized that um, in order to be able in order to use it in applications, we needed a front end. Um, we didn't want to build the front end into Mondrian because um, I wanted to disaggregate this, the stack. I was just kind of tired of, of multi-dimensional databases that came with only one, they could only use one front end. And the, the promise of MDX was that, you know, because it's a textual query language, this separation was possible, right? The, the kind of client-server separation was possible. Um, and so um, I was contacted very early on by a guy called Andreas Voss, um, who was an architect at a, a, a Frankfurt, Germany company called Tonbella. 
Um, they were building um, analytic, analytic applications, I think, for financial companies in Germany. Um, and uh, he proposed to build uh, JPivot, which was a, a JSP application um, uh, generating uh, uh, pivot tables. So a slice and dice, you know, a, a tabular interface that you could uh, drill down and, and slice and dice. Um, also, some also some charts embedded into it. He uh, he actually flew over to California, and we you know spent the the weekend kind of thrashing this out, and we came to this agreement that you know I would support um, him building JPivot, um, and he would support me and Mondrian, so we would make the two products work together. They were it wasn't going to be an exclusive relationship, so you know JPivot would be able to run on other MDX um, backends and Mondrian would support other frontends, but we, you know, agreed to prioritize if he had bugs in Mondrian, I would prioritize fixing them, um, and it worked extremely well. So these these were parallel projects, um, and people, you know, very rapidly. I think we we actually embedded JPivot inside the Mondrian distribution for a very long time. So there was a JPivot.wav file that you could download from the Mondrian site and basically get going very, very fast. Um, this single web archive um, was sufficient to uh, run a, you know, you drop it inside Tomcat and you could, you could, you could have an OLAP server running in, in very little time. So, so where did where did Pentaho come into it then? I mean, because there was a again a wider set of tools it was part of. Uh, you know, you find you can find Mondrian. I think it's part of the Pentaho suite now. I mean, what was the story there really? So, um, Pentaho is a, uh, a company based in Orlando, Florida. It was a bunch of guys who had um, done a couple of previous BI startups um, and been successful. Um, and they, they noticed that open source business intelligence was, you know, it was a thing, it was happening. Um, and so they, they decided to create an open source BI company. And they realized that, um, uh, that there were a number of, they, they would call them pillars, there were a number of technologies that um, uh, constituted a BI suite. And they set about um, bringing those existing projects which were kind of best of breed open source bi tools bringing those under the umbrella of pentaho so um uh, kettle was an was, uh, yeah. was and is an open source etl tool um uh j um j free report was a, a reporting tool um also the waker project from new zealand which is doing machine learning data mining so um, they brought all of these things in, uh, and the, you know the the lead developers of the of the projects became either Pentaho employees or in my in my case a kind of ongoing consultant, hmm. um, and then built. Uh, you know, I, I realized that Mondrian was was useful, but it was not a not a big enough footprint to be a company in itself. Hmm. So it suited my purposes to have it as part of this broader hmm. broader suite, and also with things like support available for it. So yeah, my involvement with Pentaho ended about uh, about two or three years ago. Um, I mean, Mondrian is um, uh, it's it's you know the the main emphasis, the main focus of of Pentaho, which is now Hitachi Ventara, um, 
the, the main focus of that is on ETL um, and you know da data movement and so forth, and less on user-facing analytics. I mean, they're still part of the product, but it's not the main driver of the company anymore. Um, I, uh, I wrote a, a, a book on Mondrian and uh, called Mondrian in Action um, and left Mondrian in a pretty good state. Um, I would still, um, I would still love to uh, get involved, kind of reboot Mondrian um, based on Calcite and, and uh, some of the things I've been doing more recently. I mean, in fact, uh, we'll probably discuss this in a, in a, in a few minutes, but uh, Calcite was motivated in large part by architectural challenges that, uh, you know, I, I could see in Mondrian. And so in a lot of ways, Calcite is the platform that I wanted in order to build, you know, a, a better version of Mondrian. Um, and with there's a the resurgence of interest in OLAP. I mean, projects such as Apache Kylin are and and Druid um, are are evidence that there is a continuing interest in open source OLAP. Um, and a lot of these projects would really love to have an MDX front end um, to those to the to those projects to be able to do things like complex calculations and um, dimensional access control that that kind of thing. Um, so I think there's, I think there would be an interest in it. I've, I've just been mainly focused on, on working on, on Calcite and just haven't had the time, uh, the cycles to, um, to invest in Mondrian recently. Yeah. So, and it was actually, it was, it was a, it was Calcite that I suppose in a way reminded me of the fact I knew of you and what, what you've been doing with, with kind of Mondrian. I came across Calcite with, um, I was working with Druid. And of course, it's a kind of SQL front end to Druid. It was the imply, I think the imply um, company I was working with and doing some stuff looking at that. Um, and I saw Calcite and I saw you behind it and I could see um, the themes in there. I could see why you'd been involved in that. And I could see that you're sort of like your, I suppose your mark on that really. I mean, tell us what Calcite is and how you got involved in it. And um, I suppose just kind of, or maybe just recap on what those links are back to, to, to what you're doing at Mondrian. Yeah, <clears throat> so I'll, I'll, I'll briefly briefly describe what Calcite is, and then I'll describe why um, uh, where, why it came out of my work on Mondrian. So um, Calcite is, um, I describe it as a, a framework for building databases. Um, but you can think of it as kind of a toolkit for building databases. What it is, it has a SQL interface. It has a query planner, but it doesn't actually own any of its own data. its own algorithms for executing queries. So um, you can think of it as a virtual database, perhaps. Um, and so um, uh, you can use it. Uh, it's used in Apache Hive, for example, as Hive's um, cost-based optimizer. So, so, so in that case, Hive has its own SQL parser, but it translates that's those SQL queries to relational algebra, and then 
CalSites optimizer um, applies statistics and transformation rules and converts it to optimized relational algebra, which is then converted into Hive's execution model. Uh, let, let, let me just trot out a couple of other examples. Uh, so Apache Drill is similar, but it used, uh, uh, Drill actually uses CalSite SQL parser. Um, and then you've got projects such as, yeah, you mentioned Druid. So um, that, the Druid thing started off as a SQL adapter inside CalSite. So you could do a SQL query in, 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 in CalSite that would then translate it down to Druid's multidimensional data structures. So you're doing SQL on this multidimensional engine. And then the, the, the Druid the Druid folks took that, you know, with my with my blessing and, and you know enthusiastic support, they took they took that calcite and they pushed it into Druid. So now you've got a kind of um, SQL out of the box for Druid. Um, so um, that's that, that's three examples. There's many other examples of how calcite is being used in various data management uh, projects. The idea of CalSite was to kind of building a relational database is like climbing a, 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 big, a big mountain. I've climbed several times personally, and I, I kind of know that mountaineering only gets interesting when you know you get up to the snow line. So the idea of CalSite is to get you up to the snow line, you, you know, build the build the, the the query plan or the SQL parser and so forth, so you can start adding your own unique value of your particular storage data structures, your your algorithms, or 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 something like that. Okay, okay. So I mean, you're you're you're. I mean, I've heard you talk about you know you know disaggregating the database and that kind of statement there. I mean, that's a very common theme in, I suppose, in Hadoop and in a lot of these distributed kind of engines where you know the data is separate to the query engine and and uh, that way you can apply different kind of query engines to it and so on. I mean, that's a very common theme, really, isn't it? Now within the world we work within. Yes, yes. Hadoop was was all about that. Um, I mean, it was also about Hadoop was a you know, a massively distributed system solving a problem that previously a, you know, a, a database is a, re a relatively tightly integrated uh, traditional Oracle database, uh, you know, SMP database is a relatively tidy, tightly integrated piece of software, whereas Hadoop is a, a you know, massively parallel system. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the other thing was about Hadoop, as you say, was it dis disaggregated the database. So it's not the, no longer would you have, you know, a piece of software from a single vendor that provided where you had to start off with an empty box, you had to pump the data in, store it in that vendor's format, access it through, you know, the, the parser provided by that vendor and using all of the, you know, algorithms of that vendor. In the case of Hadoop, you can store it wherever you like, um, in whatever data format you like, um, you can write code to access it, or you can use, uh, you know, a SQL parser, and you can also include embed your own algorithms in it. So, um, Hadoop is an environment into which you can um, basically build your own database. Um, um, but tools like t tools like CalSite kind of make it faster for you to build a database. It gives you the tools that you can. Kind of, it's like a kit that you can um, then put put together the pieces, such as if you want to use Parquet data and if you want to use, um, I don't know, um, a particular a particular engine to, to execute. 
whereas calcite is is the the framework that you can use to to put all those pieces together so i suppose in a way it's quite it's a similar kind of objective as as, as west mckinney had with the uh patiaro project in that you're providing i suppose um uh, parts of the toolkit that other projects can use uh, to save reinventing it and to get some kind of i suppose collaboration and uh and, and yeah, and I suppose in a way to put best of breed pro- things into these open source projects, and and you know, in a way, uh, I suppose in a way, kind of uh, use your knowledge you built up over the years really to try and benefit everybody. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I know Wes, and we 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 tend to uh, be very simpatico in the way we see the world. Um, I think I think both of us have, have uh, are on a, on a kind of personal crusade to make things better, because creating creating these kind of these hubs that you know a commonplace that allows you know multiple applications to come together in one point as, as a kind of standard um, it requires a huge amount of investment to to create this and there's the the things only become this hub only becomes valuable when you have five or six or 10 or 20 different applications all speaking to your common data format or your common relational algebra. So getting, getting, to, getting this to be exothermic so that it's actually producing more value than you're putting into it takes, takes a lot of investment. And, and whereas I know has that kind of individual just passion to, to, to just go ahead and, and put the work in even, even be, before it's it's producing any any you know palpable results so so what about um i mean we've been talking about you know writing sql and uh, i suppose it runs in batch and so on i mean is there any kind of uh, thoughts about extending this or extending the work you do into say streaming sql i mean that that's that's the kind of big new thing at the moment yeah it's um it was a big new thing in in 2004 yeah. <laughs> uh, when, when i uh when i uh co-founded sql stream um I mean, the, 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 big, the big underpinning thing here is relational algebra. Um, so just going back to Arrow briefly, the, the kind of the unifying thing in, uh, in Arrow is, the, is this idea of a memory-efficient format um, for, for data. And in, in the case of Calcite, the, uni- the, the, the central principle is this idea of, of relational algebra. So representing your queries algebraically in a way that be, can be manipulated and optimized. That's, so that's the central thing inside Calcite. Um, and um, it, it, the relational algebra is not just for ta- flat tables on um, it, it turns out that streaming applications are doing something which is can be represented in relational algebra. It turns out that document databases and OLAP databases um, uh, can also, the queries can be represented in relational algebra. And um, you, when you're writing all of these kind of systems, every single one of those systems, the idea of pushing down a filter to a data source makes sense. Um, pushing down projections to a database, to, to a source makes sense. Um, pushing down aggregations, so you're, you know, you're uh, c- combining rows into into subtotals as early in the process as possible makes sense because just using less memory and less network and so forth. So, um, 
yeah, it 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 makes a lot of sense to apply the relational uh, the 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 engineering techniques you use to build a relational database. It makes sense to apply those techniques to a streaming system. Yeah, I guess I guess similar things come along with 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 kind of uh, is it, was it um, uh, Confluent? That's it, Confluent and KSQL. Yeah. That's a very similar kind of approach, isn't it? Yeah. Well, um, it's, uh, well, possibly, maybe not to you, but it's uh, certainly it's kind of using SQL and set-based um, transformations in in kind of streaming data. No, I I, I would agree. Um, um, I mean, there are other um, uh, from from within the Apache ecosystem. I, I've been promoting this idea of streaming SQL mm. and trying to build some consensus about what it should look like. Um, I I. I firmly believe that some future version of the SQL standard, you know, SQL 2020 or something, mm. um, will include streaming extensions. Um, okay. But but for now, um, what will drive that standard is people, you know, the the innov- innovative um, data technology these days tends to come out of open source. Yes. So. Um, I've been working with the various streaming projects, such as Apache Flink, um, Apache Storm, um, Apache Apex, um, and uh, you know, also speaking to Spark and, uh, and Kafka um, to uh, get some kind of consensus about what SQL should look like when it's run to build streaming applications. Um, and there, there is a consensus emerging. Um, so I'm doing this kind of as part of, you know, as uh, as part of Calcite. But the goal is really not to produce. We are, we we are producing a reference implementation of streaming SQL, and so there's, you know, extensions to the parser and so forth, and you can execute some queries, streaming queries inside Calcite. But my bigger goal is to try and build consensus, which basically involves producing examples and talk, you know doing talks about it and getting just put it, putting up straw men so what do you think about this query what should it produce and, and creating this creating this discussion so you know there there are difficult cases like what what happens when you join a stream to a table let's suppose you've got a stream of orders and you're joining it to a price list table and the contents of the price list table are changing from minute to minute so and then what happens if I replay that streaming query 10 hours later and the price of that item that you ordered that was joined to 10 hours ago, uh, is, it, is this, is this uh, query, does this query need to produce different results because the contents of the price list has changed since then? Or do we need to introduce some kind of temporal database semantics so that when, it, when I rerun that query 10 hours later, it can automatically figure out the price, what the price list table or what that item in the price list table looked like at the time that order was placed. So which we're, we're trying to work through those, those kind of uh, semantic issues. Okay. So, so, I mean, so just to kind of round off really, I mean, you're, you're at, you're at Hortonworks now, aren't you? And, and what is your role? Well, you work with, do you work with Hortonworks or for them? I mean, certainly you're out there now, but what's your kind of role there and what are you doing there that is, is linked with kind of Calcite? Okay, so um, Hortonworks is um, one of the main Hadoop vendors, yeah. um, and um, 
Historically, Hortonworks has been very strongly open source. Just about all of their projects are um, Apache projects. Um, and uh, we have a huge number of, uh, you know, just about all of our engineers contribute actively to Apache projects day in, day out. Um, and um, I'm an architect at Hortonworks. I think there are, uh, you know, five or six architects. So I have responsibility to oversee the whole product set to just make sure that it works together. Um, so oversight is one of my uh, responsibilities there. Um, but also, um, you know, the reason Hortonworks approached me was they wanted a cost-based optimizer inside Hive. And they said, they said very clearly, um, we don't want you to work on, on Hive. We want you to produce Calcite. We, we see the benefit of Calcite being an independent framework. So um, it was actually called Optic back at that time, but we renamed it because of, of clashes with existing products that were out there. Um, and so um, they asked me to establish Calcite as an Apache project that was used inside Hive and many other places, um, including, by the way, um, you know, Apache Drill, which is produced by MapR, which is one of Hortonworks' competitors. And this being open source, there's, there's no, um, they don't have a problem with that. Um, I mean, a Apache Drill developer will need a particular feature in Drill, a particular query optimization, for example, and will contribute that back you know, as an Apache committer. And then that will benefit the next release of Hive. Um, so um, uh, the Apache Software Foundation provides this excellent medium for people that work for competing companies to collaborate, um, where, you know, without conflicts of interest being, you know, being a continual worry. So, so I'm, I'm making Calcite successful. Um, uh, and, and that benefits Hive. And, you know, we've been able to achieve some, uh, stunning improvements in Hive because of the improved query plans that we're, we're generating. Yeah. So, so just to kind of round off then, I mean, how would people find out about Calcite? How would they find out about, um, uh, what you're doing there and maybe, um, contribute towards that or, or just even just download things and play around with it? How would they find it and use it really? Okay. You can go to our website, calcite.apache.org. Um, it being a, uh, Apache project, um, the, the community is, is, is centered around the, uh, developer list. So, um, we just welcome people coming on the, on the developer, even if you're not a developer, come on the list and ask a question. Um, of course you can download it and try it out and kick the tires. Mm. Um, uh, and make contributions if if you want to try something then make make a contribution to the project um i uh, speak uh, i don't have any talks scheduled right now but i speak speak fairly frequently at conferences yeah i'm also active on twitter so my mm -hmm. uh i'm julian hyde on twitter mm -hmm. uh, calcite also has a twitter handle apache calcite mm -hmm. so uh, you can follow that to get to get news about uh, calcite releases and talks and so forth 
Okay, and I guess people will come across calcite most through using it through things like Druid and so on as well. So it's it's you know as well as it being a sort of project on its own, it, the key thing is it's it's actually kind of enabling those projects to be kind of SQL compatible and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's true that Calcite does not have a large number of direct customers. The main the main audience for Calcite, frankly, is people building data management systems. Mm. So you may be using Calcite today without realizing mm. it. Yeah, uh, I've been using it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and you know my, my dream is to allow you know feder- federated systems so you know uh, heterogeneous systems where perhaps some of your data is living in Druid and some of your data is living live um, well th- you know that example is already is already happening um, uh, and perhaps in the case of in the case of Mondrian some of the data is living in HDFS and some of the data is living in a data grid um, so those kind of heterogeneous uh, scenarios are um, uh, being made possible by Calcite in a way that the kind of the traditional, you know, single monolithic database would would never be able to achieve because, um, you know, the box it's a closed boxy and you can't add your new algorithms and, and so forth to it. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, it's been great speaking to Julian. I mean, <clears throat> what, what's, what's fascinating is how <clears throat> you've been working on many, many things in the background that I've, been, that I've been using as a developer and end user and so on. And uh, the stuff you've been doing in terms of contribution to the to the open source community is, is fantastic. And uh, it's been fantastic speaking to you, really. So, yeah, thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, what I'll do is I'll put uh, notes in the show notes with links to the various projects you worked on and so on, particularly CalSite now. And um, it's been great to to have you on here, and thank you for your time. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Mark. So I I hope you uh, continue to use my stuff, and I hope there's some more interesting stuff coming down the pipe that you'll get to use in the future. Okay. Cheers, and thanks. Bye. Mm -hmm.